Amen. So just before we get started with our message today, I also want to remind you that today is our Gratitude Sunday. And if this is your first time being with us on one of our Gratitude Sundays, what we do is two things. We recognize that we owe God everything, and we want to demonstrate our gratitude to Him by receiving from Him what He offers and by returning to Him what He asks for. And so we receive from Him in communion. On either side of the room this morning, we've got communion stations. We've got little pieces of bread and grape juice. And over there, we've got some gluten-free crackers and some grape juice. And we invite you at the end of our worship gathering to come forward, to take a piece of the bread, dip it in the grape juice, and eat the two of them together, remembering that Jesus shed his blood and his body was broken for us. The bread and the grape juice symbolize his body and his blood, which he sacrificed for us. And so we receive it anew, because God gave us an incredible gift. Why would we not want to receive the gift he's offered us? And then secondarily, we've got baskets on either side, and we would encourage you to bring your offerings, bring tithes. We encourage people to bring the first 10% of their income and give it right back to God. It's a principle that we as a church follow, and it's a principle that we encourage people to follow too. And since we're on that subject, I do want to say a special thanks to you. For the past couple of weeks, I've been telling you that during the summer, we had an attendance slump and a financial slump. And last week, last month, you guys really came through. And so uh, we didn't come all the way up to sort of what we anticipate our budget numbers are. But from October to November, we had a six or $7,000 increase in our total general fund giving. And so I wanted to thank you guys for stepping it up and just making a contribution so that uh, you could really say, hey, God, I'm really in this. So we've got one more month to this year. This week, I'm going to publish some numbers so you can see exactly exactly where we stand as we try to close out the year, but I wanted to let you know all those things too. Okay, jelly of the month. Why are we talking about the jelly of the month? So here's the deal. That clip from that movie is one of the most disappointing Christmas scenes of all time, where the whole movie has been building up to Clark W. Griswold needing his Christmas bonus, and there in that moment, he finally opens up his Christmas bonus and finds out he's gotten a one-year uh, one subscription to the Jelly of the Month Club. And the disappointment is just so thick. My most disappointing Christmas was when I was about 10 years old, and... It revolves around a Murray Street Machine bicycle. Now, I don't know if you've heard about the Murray Street Machine, but when I was 10, um, so like around 85, 86, the Murray Street Machine was the coolest bike on the market for two reasons. One, it was a bike that was made for teenagers that had three speeds. It wasn't a 10-speed, not one of those nasty, big 10-speed bikes. And it wasn't one of these small BMX bikes. It had three speeds. And so, number two, they marketed it well. The marketing involved speed lines coming behind the teenager as he was racing his friends. And my goodness, they spent so much money leading up to Christmas to advertise the Murray Street Machine. There's only one problem. I didn't want it. You see, when I was uh, just turning 10, I had gotten a job as a paper boy. And so, as a paper boy, I rode my bike all the time, including up a hill, including off of people's curbs, because I learned when I was coming home from my paper route that I could make my BMX bike go on the little curb right on someone's driveway and hit it just right and get some air. And I learned a technique, I don't know if you know this, but I learned a technique called the bunny hop. 
If you're familiar with the bunny hop, you grab the handlebars up front and you jump. But when you jump, you lift the bike up with you, and so you can pull the bike up so it stays on your feet, and so you can get like a couple feet of air, and you can actually bunny hop on top of things. And I had just learned this technique with my little BMX bike. It was light. It was only 20-inch wheels, that kind of stuff. And I didn't want the street machine because the street machine was one of these big bikes with multiple speeds. It was going to weigh a lot. It was heavy. I couldn't get it up the hill as well because the speeds were meant to go faster, not to get you up hills better. It wasn't like a mountain bike or anything like that. But on Christmas morning, I come around the corner. And there in the corner of our living room is a giant lump shielded by wrapping paper. And I knew, I knew at that moment that my parents had taken the big risk of buying the most expensive, coolest bike that any 10-year-old boy could possibly want. They just didn't know I didn't want it. And so before they got up, I peeked under the paper and I saw the little line right on the side of the bar, Murray Street Machine, and I worked myself up into surprise into gratitude, into thankfulness, into, oh, mom and dad, you got me a bike. It's so cool. This is the coolest bike ever. And unless they're listening to me right now on the internet, I don't think they have ever heard me tell them that I never wanted the Murray Street Machine. And I felt so bad about it. I felt so bad because I knew that they must have taken a massive financial risk to acquire such an incredible piece of machinery. But in that moment, I realized disappointment that I just simply had to mask and pretend it wasn't there. And so I went through that Christmas season, opening up all the other small, tiny, insignificant packages, wondering what else I could have had if my parents hadn't spent all the money on the bike. For the next couple of years, I kept both bikes. And on my paper route, every now and then I would ride my BMX bike, but every now and then, just out of obligation, I would ride the street machine until the day that the BMX bike got stolen, and then the rest of the days were all the street machine. Yes. Why am I talking about this? Because Christmas is a time of disappointment. Every one of us has had a disappointing Christmas story. In fact, if you watch any Christmas movies during this season, you are going to see the same theme show up time and time again. It's usually the theme where Santa has disappointed someone when they were a child, and then they grew up to not believe in Santa, and then Santa does something for the person to give them the gift that they really wanted when they were five, but now that they're 50, for some reason that gift makes them believe in Santa Claus again. And then the whole thing starts over again. It's every single movie has this same basic theme where someone gets disappointed in Santa and then later on they start believing in Santa again, all because of this gift that is given to them. And I'm thinking to myself, how many more people get disappointed with God and never come back around? How many more people have that thing that they ask God for and he never actually came through and then they get disappointed with him and they never come back around? And here's the reason why this is so important. It's because I believe the true meaning of Christmas has a lot to do with disappointment. I believe that this season, what I want you to get out of it is that there is the true meaning of Christmas that is, it's the gift that keeps on giving. 
the whole year. Or to put it a little bit more bluntly, let me just give you something. Write this down. Disappointment might be the very thing that I need. Disappointment might be the very thing that I need. Over this next few weeks, I'm going to give you six stories where someone got a subscription to the Jelly of the Month Club. Six stories where someone encountered God and was disappointed by him. Six times where God let someone down and it was exactly what they needed. Today, we're going to look at a fellow named John the Baptist. And uh, I got to give you a little bit of background on John the Baptist first before we do that. So John the Baptist is actually the first Christmas story that we find in the Bible. The first Christmas story that we find in the Bible is not about Jesus, it's about this guy named John. It's in the book of Luke, and there's this priest, his name is Zechariah, and his wife doesn't have any children, and they're getting older, and they really would like children. And so Zechariah goes to the, goes to the temple one day, and he's there serving in the temple, and an angel, Gabriel, shows up to him, and he says to Zechariah, you're going to have a child, and Zechariah says, I don't believe you. And the angel says, fine then, you're not allowed to talk until he's born. So Zechariah can't talk again. He physically can't speak. And then meanwhile, his wife becomes pregnant, Elizabeth, and she happens to be the cousin of a woman you might know named Mary, who becomes the mother of a person you might know, Jesus. And so Elizabeth, the cousin of Mary, is now pregnant. And when Mary gets pregnant, she needs someone to stay with because she's not married and she is pregnant. And so everybody's wondering what's happening here. And so she goes and she stays with Elizabeth for a while. And the story tells us that the baby inside a Elizabeth's womb, when Mary approaches, leaps inside her womb. We are told from Scripture that it's the, it's the man who later is known as John the Baptist, and the Holy Spirit filled him while he was still in his mother's womb so that he was born already ready for the work that God was calling him to do. It's an amazing story of how Christmas begins with a guy named John, actually. And so then John, he grows up, he becomes a prophet. He then goes out into the wilderness and he begins challenging people. He says, you need to follow God. You need to get your act together with God. And while John is out there in the wilderness, his cousin Jesus shows up and he baptizes Jesus after first saying, no, 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 Jesus, I think I should, bapti- I should be baptized by you But Jesus says, no, 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 we're going to do it this way because this fulfills all righteousness. In fact, I want to take you to a passage in the Gospel of John, written by a different John, about John the Baptist and a time that he was preaching out there in the wilderness. I'm going to put it up on the screen here. It says this. John replied to the people who were asking him questions in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who'd been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. 
Keep going. He says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Keep going. He says, then... John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I've seen and testified that this is God's chosen one. Later on, Jesus will talk about John the Baptist and say that John the Baptist is the greatest human being who's ever been born. Jesus thought John was a really great guy. And John here in this message, he's basically declaring, Jesus, that guy that I have seen the Holy Spirit come down on, Jesus, that guy is the Savior of the world. There's there's just one problem. The next time we find out about John and what he's up to, he's in prison. And that's weird. Because see, Herod, the king arrests John because John has been preaching judgment against people. John's been preaching that, hey, listen, when the Messiah shows up, y'all better get your act together because he's going to judge people. And then he finds out that Herod is now sleeping with his brother's wife. And so John says to Herod, listen, buddy, when the Messiah shows up, you're going to be judged. You better get your act together. And Herod says, I don't want to listen to this guy anymore. So Herod throws him in prison. Here's the problem. John is now in prison and he's thinking to himself, I'm sure he's thinking to himself, wait a minute, what's going on here? I've got the Spirit of God in me. I'm speaking the truth. What's going on here? I know the Messiah has already come. What's going on here? The Messiah has come to bring judgment, has he not? And why is Jesus not doing anything? Because see, John, we know quoted from the book of Isaiah. And I have to believe that a prophet who quotes from the book of Isaiah knows the rest of the book of Isaiah. That he spent all his time saying, well, I'm in the the shoes of Isaiah here. He probably read the book. In fact, I want to show you some things from the book of Isaiah that John, I'm certain, knew. The first one is from chapter 40, the one that John already quoted. I know he knows Isaiah 40 because he already quoted this. I'll put it up here. He says this, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. It says, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. His reward is with him. His recompense accompanies him. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. And then this famous line, they will mount, they will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. That's all from Isaiah 40. John quoted Isaiah 40. I know he knows Isaiah 40. And Isaiah 40 is all about how this Messiah is going to come and the glory of the Lord is going to be revealed and he's going to bring judgment and reward with him. 
For each one of these, I want you to go ahead and write down, I don't have blanks for this, but I want you to go ahead and write down just sort of some summary sentences from the passages that we look at. And the first summary is this. John knows that when the Messiah comes, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and he will bring his reward and judgment. The glory of the Lord will be revealed and he will bring reward and judgment. When John is quoting from Isaiah 40, that's what he thinks it's teaching. I'm certain because that's what it teaches. But let's look at some other passages. Let's look at one from Isaiah 35. In Isaiah 35, we see this. It says, Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. With divine retribution, He will come to save you. Vengeance on some salvation for others. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Do you see? There's another set of things that's going to happen. Of course, we see reward and judgment showing up again, but now we get some new things. The promise is that when God shows up in the, in the Messiah, we're going to also find that he's going to bring sight to the blind, he's going to bring speech to the deaf, and he's going to bring healing to the lame. He's going to bring sight to the, bring sight to the blind, he's going to bring speech to the deaf, and he'll bring healing to the lame. John knows Isaiah, and he knows this is the list of what the Messiah is supposed to do. In Isaiah 61, One of the most important passages, just the first two verses say this, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And once again, we get reward and judgment favor, and vengeance. But now some new things are also added. There's preaching good news to the poor. There's comfort for the broken in two different ways. Comfort for the brokenhearted, comfort for all who mourn. He's going to free the prisoners and he's going to bring favor and judgment. He's going to preach good news to the poor, comfort the broken. He's going to free the prisoners and he'll bring favor and judgment. John, I'm certain, in prison, is wondering to himself, I thought he was the one. I thought Jesus was the one. In fact, Jesus himself says he's the one. This is where it gets really difficult for John, I'm sure, because in Luke chapter 4, one chapter after Luke 3, where we find out John is now in prison. In Luke 4, Jesus goes to Nazareth and he is given a scroll to read in the synagogue. And it just so happens that he finds the place in Isaiah that we would call chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. It says this, On the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me 
to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he says, I just read a phrase that says the spirit of the Lord is on me. I'm letting you all know that was me talking, not Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, here, now, to do these things. And I'm certain when John heard Jesus say that, when the word made its way to the prison where John was and he heard the words that Jesus had said, I'm sure confusion and disappointment ravaged John's heart. Because let's just put them side by side. I made a little chart here. Let's just put them side by side. And you see that in Isaiah 61, we have the Spirit's on me. In Luke 4, the Spirit's on me. Isaiah 61, the Lord's anointed me. In Luke 4, the Lord's anointed me. Good news to the poor, good news to the poor. Binding up the brokenhearted, Jesus doesn't say that line. But freedom for the captives, he does. Sight for the blind, Jesus says, even though Isaiah says releasing prisoners from darkness, that's similar, I can understand that. But then, Jesus says, set the oppressed free So that's kind of the comforting all who mourn. It's kind of the binding up the brokenhearted. And then both Isaiah and Luke say, proclaim the Lord's favor, but Jesus stops there. He doesn't say the line, the day of vengeance. And I imagine Luke, as he writes this down, knows that's significant. And imagine John, when he hears, he realizes disappointment. You see, the first disappointment that John would have in Jesus is that Jesus stopped reading too soon. Jesus was supposed to read the whole thing. The day of favor, yes, and the day of vengeance. You can't have favor for some without vengeance on others. You can't lift up the people of Israel without bringing the people of Rome down. You can't lift up the people who are oppressed without bringing down the oppressors. Is it possible for a Messiah to be a halfway Messiah? Is it possible for Jesus to only do half of the Messiah job and not do the rest of it? I'm sure when John hears that, he's like, wait a minute, no, that's not right. Jesus, you stopped reading too soon. Everybody knows, and the day of vengeance of our God. Oh, and there's another problem. You remember how Jesus said freeing the prisoners? John is literally in prison. Uh, Disappointment number two. Jesus hasn't yet freed any prisoners. And this disappointment is personal to John, I'm sure. Because this disappointment is John saying, wait a minute, Jesus, it's not just abstract prisoners we're talking about anymore. This is me we're talking about, Jesus. This is me. I'm the, I'm the prophet who spoke about you. I'm the prophet who told everybody about you. I'm, I'm the one you came to. I baptized you, Jesus, and now I'm in prison. Do you know how I know John is disappointed by this? Do you know how I know John is upset by this? It's because he tells us. In Luke chapter 7, we get to this amazing thing where John hears 
that Jesus has been preaching and doing miracles and he's been doing all these things and John is just sort of languishing in prison thinking to himself, what about me? And we read these words in Luke chapter 7. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people, but not John anymore. He's not the prophet they're talking about. They're talking about Jesus. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. God has come to help his people. And John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? See, in that line, you can just hear his disappointment. Jesus, I know you're doing these miracles. Jesus, I know you're doing these cool things for all these other people. But Jesus, it's said there, freeing the captives. Are you the one I'm supposed to be hoping for? Or should I just keep waiting for someone else? See, this is, the, this is the real message of Christmas, I think. When Jesus shows up on the planet, there are a lot of people who when they encounter him, they get disappointed. He's not the person they expected. He's not the person they wanted. He's not the person they thought he would be. And so they just get disappointed. Jesus' answer to John isn't even all that helpful. On the surface, when you look a little deeper, it is. But let me, show you what, let me show you what Jesus says. When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to them, Go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Jesus says, I want you to say these words specifically to John. Why would Jesus say these words? Well, as a matter of fact, these are the words that we've already seen in Isaiah. These are the words that I'm sure John already knew. I think Jesus is giving John some code and he's telling John, listen, you know all that stuff in Isaiah? Let me tell you I'm doing it. In fact, I made another chart for you just to make it explicit. So here we go. I'll put it up here. You can see on the left-hand side would have been John's checklist. Bring reward and judgment. Give sight to the blind. Give speech to the deaf. Give healing to the lame, bring good news, free the prisoners. And then Jesus on his side, he says, I give sight to the blind. I give speech to the deaf. I give healing to the lame. I bring good news. But what's weird is that he misses two that are on John's list and he adds two more. He says, I heal leprosy. I was thinking about this. Do you know why that's important? There are two Old Testament prophets that are above all the other prophets. Their names are Elijah and Elisha. Elijah is the one that everybody thought John was. John was one that everybody says was a person in the spirit of Elijah. In fact, Jesus himself said that John is the Elijah who was to come. In fact, Jesus says that just a few verses after this in chapter 7. Jesus says that John is the Elijah who the Old Testament promised would come. 
There's only one problem. Elijah was superseded by a second guy named Elisha. And Elisha, we are told, received a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And guess what? One miracle Elisha did that Elijah never did. Healing a leper. Jesus, I believe right here in this moment, is saying, wait a minute. Yeah, there is an Elijah, but there's one who comes after him. And the one who came after him healed leprosy. And by the way, John, I heal leprosy. And then secondly, secondly, this is amazing. He says, and I raise the dead. Man, I imagine if I'm John, this is the place where you come, you, you come to that conflict of realization where the things that you want and the things that you need are not in sync anymore. Because the thing that you want, man, I just want rewards and judgment. Man, I just want prisoners to be freed. But Jesus says, listen, I raise dead people. I imagine John is thinking this truth, and it's a truth that I know sometimes you have thought, and it's a truth that all of us need to come to grips with. Jesus is not what I want. Jesus isn't what I want. There are too many times in our lives where we think that Jesus should somehow shape himself towards me. But the truth of the matter is, he's never what I want. The only time Jesus is ever what I want is when my wants change to be in his direction. When my wants change towards him, then he becomes what I want. But just by myself, he is not what I want, but he is what I need. You see, what John wants is he wants to get out of jail. What John wants is he wants the Romans to be conquered. What John wants is he wants to receive the reward that's been promised him. That's what he wants. Of course, we all want that. But what he needs is someone who can defeat death. What he needs is someone who can bring you into eternity. What he needs is someone who has the power of life and death. Oh, and what he needs is one more thing, because this is the best part of all. You see, Jesus says this one line at the end of Luke 7, in verse 23, he says this one line that I think is simultaneously just beautiful for him, for you, for me, for John, but it's also code. Let me show it to you. In John 8, excuse me, John 7, 23, Jesus says this, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. This is Jesus' point. He says, listen, I'm going to do things that you don't like. I'm going to be a person that you don't want me to be. I'm going to be all kinds of things that you don't expect. And people who come to Jesus expecting one thing can sometimes trip over that. I expected Jesus that I want, and instead he's not what I want. And so they trip over that, they stumble, and they just simply say, okay, fine. He's not the one I want, so I'm just going to keep walking. I'm just going to leave him behind me. And Jesus says, blessed are the people. Blessed are the people who don't stumble because of him. See, the, the best reason to not believe in Jesus is Jesus. The best reason to give up on Jesus is Jesus. If there's something about Jesus that you just simply can't get past, well then fine, walk away from him. That's what a lot of people do. They stumble on who he is because he's not the person that I want him to be. He's not Mr. Lovey-dovey happy all the time. No, Jesus is a real person who is really God in the flesh. And how do I know that? Because of Luke 7.23. It's code that Jesus was giving, that only John 
could have known. Because back in Isaiah, that same concept shows up. The concept of people stumbling over a stumbling stone. Look at this. In Isaiah chapter 8, the Lord Almighty is the one that you are to regard as holy. He is the one you're to fear. He is the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Keep going. It says many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. Bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instruction among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord whose hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. And just because that's long, I wanted to narrow it down, simplify it, and share it with you in just a a much more compact form. So take a look at this. It says, the Lord Almighty is the one you're to regard as holy. He will be a holy place, a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And I will wait for the Lord who's hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. You see, I believe that when Jesus says to John, blessed is the person who doesn't stumble on account of me, he is bringing back to John's mind this passage in Isaiah, a passage I'm certain John would have known, a passage that says, wait a minute, people stumble on God himself. Because God isn't what I want. My job isn't to shape God to be more like what I want. My, God is to shape, my job is to shape me to be more like what God wants. He's not what I want, but he is what I need. And God himself is the one who causes people to stumble. And so even when I don't see his face, I will wait and I will put my trust in him. John says, are you the one who was to come? Or should we wait for someone else? And the answer is yes. Yes, he is the one who is to come. And yes, some waiting still has to be done. And Jesus says, I might be the person that people stumble on, but John, you and I know this code. I'm telling you, John, I am God in the flesh. And a lot of people aren't going to get it. But even when you can't see his face, you can still trust the God of your creation. I don't know what your Christmas is going to be like. I don't know if you're going to be disappointed with the gifts you receive. But I know this. During this season and perhaps during the next season of your life, you might encounter a time when God has disappointed you. And I just want to encourage you that, yeah, so what? Jesus isn't what you want. But he is exactly what you need. The only question for you and me is, can I say the whole sentence? Or do I stop at the first half? We can all say, yeah, sure, God isn't what I want. Jesus isn't what I want right now. The question is, can I finish the sentence? But he's exactly what I need. I pray that during this Christmas season, you will find, you will discover that disappointment might just be exactly what you need. I want to give you some time to just reflect on these thoughts, to jot down some things 
to, uh, if there's something going on in your heart, maybe you could write it down if you got one of the Connect cards on your way in today, or uh, put it in our app in the online Connect card in the menu off to the side, but just spend a few moments in reflection. We're going to close out our time with communion and offering and another song, and I just want to invite you to spend this time reaching out to God and say, God, what does it mean to me today that you're not the God I want? Jesus, you're not the one I want, but you're exactly what I need. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And His plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.